0: This is a uh, a true story. Okay? True story. <clears throat> Brenda was a, a young woman who was invited to go rock climbing. And although she was scared to death, she went with a, a group to this, this tremendous granite cliff. In spite of her fear, she put on the the gear. Kind of rhymes, doesn't it? In spite of her fear, she put on the gear, took hold of the rope, and she started up the face of that rock. Brenda eventually got to a ledge where she could uh, take a breather, And as she was hanging there, the safety rope snapped against her eye and knocked out her contact lens. Brenda looked all around for for the lens, hoping it had landed nearby on the ledge, but it wasn't there. There she is on a rock ledge with hundreds of feet below her and hundreds of feet above her and upset because her sight was now blurry. So she prayed to the Lord to help her to get safely to the top and to help her find her contact lens. When Brenda got to the top, A friend examined her eye and her clothing for the lens, but it was not to be found. Discouraged, she sat down with her climbing party, waiting for the rest of them to make it up the face of the cliff. She looked out across the range of mountains thinking of the the Bible verse that says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And she thought, Lord, you can see all these mountains. You know every stone and every leaf. And you know exactly where my contact lens is. Please help me. Finally, they walked down the trail to the bottom. At the bottom, there was a new party of climbers just starting up the face of the cliff. And one of them shouted, Hey, you guys, did anybody lose a contact lens? That's amazing. But what's even more amazing is how the contact lens was found. A tiny ant was moving slowly across the face of the rock, carrying it. Brenda told her father, who was a cartoonist, about the incredible story of of her contact lens and the prayer and the ant. And he drew a cartoon picture of of a tiny ant carrying a huge contact lens with the words, Lord, I don't know why you want me to carry this thing. I can't eat it, and it's awfully heavy. But if this is what you want me to do, I'll carry it for you. I love that story. Yes, God is good. I think it is fair to say, I think it is fair to say that there have been times when all of us feel like that tiny ant carrying the heavy contact lens. A burden has been placed on us that seems too much to bear. We struggle under the load. We struggle under the pressure. And as far as we can tell, as far as we can tell, there is no good purpose it. We see no value coming from it. And like the ant, we wonder why the Lord has called us to carry it. I think we've all been there. I think we can all relate to that tiny ant To some degree or another. And this morning we will be looking at a church who most certainly could relate to the tiny ant. We are studying the the messages sent to seven real churches mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation where Jesus gives his unique, insider perspective of what he sees in these churches. For he sees what we do not see. Jesus is in the midst of the church. He's walking among the church, and he carefully examines the church. Jesus knows what is really going on. So these messages are similar to performance reviews, performance evaluations, assessments of their strengths and of their weaknesses, including points of praise, points of encouragement, and points of rebuke. Last week we considered the church of Ephesus. The first church on this postal route in the western region of Asia Minor. And from all appearances it seemed to be like a great church. A happening church, a busy church, a doctrinally sound church. But Jesus said there was something missing in this church. Love. Their love for God and their love for others, which are two sides of the same coin, had faded. They were a church who had forsaken their first love. And as a consequence, they would lose their place. And history tells us they would eventually cease to be a church. This morning we are pressing on, looking at the second church on this postal route, that being the church at Smyrna. And as we did last week, I want to first look at the city before we consider the church. If someone had taken a survey of the best places to live at the end of the first century, the city of Smyrna would have made the list. The city of Smyrna was founded as a Greek city colony, about 1000 B.C. But sometime around 600 B.C., 400 years later, the city was destroyed by the king of Lydia. Later, it was ordered to be rebuilt by Alexander the Great. And it would be completed by one of his successors around 200 the city of Smyrna had a population of about 100,000 people in John's day. Like Ephesus, Smyrna, which was about 35 miles to the north, was also a, a commercial port city with an excellent harbor to the Aegean Sea. And as such, it was a very wealthy and thriving import and export city. Second only to the city of Ephesus. And today, Smyrna is now known as Izmir, Turkey. I-Z-M-I-R. Izmir, Turkey. Apparently... Smyrna was a, a city of great beauty, and impressive architecture, a planned city that formed a circle around a large hill called Mount Pagas, which gave the appearance of a crown. So this city was called the crown of Asia or the crown city. Smyrna was known for its schools of science and medicine. They had a library, a gymnasium, a stadium for their annual Olympian Games. And they boasted of a theater on Mount Pagos which could seat some 20,000 spectators. That's a big theater. Smyrna was a religious city. And with that, there were many temples of worship to their Greek gods. At one end of the main street was the temple to Zeus. At the other end of the main street was the temple to Sibley, who was considered the mother goddess of Smyrna. In John's day, the city was intensely loyal to Rome. And they were engaged in the cultic practice of imperial worship. Where the Roman emperor was worshipped as a god. In fact, Smyrna was at the epicenter of this very popular cult. And in 26 AD, they built a temple for Emperor Tiberius. So Smyrna was a a religious city. They worshipped their Greek gods. They were leaders in the practice of emperor worship. And there was also a large Jewish population in this city. And they had their own Jewish synagogue as well. In regards to the church in Smyrna, very little is known about their background. There is no mention of its founding in the New Testament. None whatsoever. But referencing Acts chapter 19 verse 10, it is thought that the Apostle Paul, or maybe one of his companions, might have introduced Christianity to Smyrna while they were in Ephesus. For a couple years, 35 miles away. So relatively speaking, outside of this hodgepodge of religious activity, the city seemed like a great place to live. Unless you were a follower of Jesus Christ. In Smyrna, if you identified with Jesus, you had better buckle up because it was going to be a very hard and bumpy ride. Smyrna means myrrh, myrrh, which was a highly valued spice that gives out a sweet aroma when it is crushed, And as we will see in a bit, that is a fairly accurate picture of this church. A church being crushed under relentless persecution as they stood for Christ. That's the background. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Are we there? Okay. It begins. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. Let's stop right there. This letter as we've already said, is written to the pastor. It's written to the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And to this church, Jesus reminds these believers that he is the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. This is similar wording to how Jesus introduced himself to the Apostle John back in chapter 1. And when the Bible speaks in opposites like first and last, A to Z, Alpha and the Omega, it means we are to understand that it also includes everything in between. To this church, Jesus says He existed before creation. He will exist after creation has disappeared. And He is sovereign of everything in between. Jesus is in control of their current reality. He is moving events along to accomplish his divine purposes, and they need to let this truth sink in. Jesus said he was dead and has come to life. He suffered and died, but the grave could not hold him. Jesus is the life who also holds the keys to death. And this church needed to be reminded that their own suffering and persecution, although difficult as it may be, was only temporary, momentary, in light of eternal life. As I have said to some of you, Our lives on this earth are only a blink of an eye compared to eternity. Think about that. Just a blink of an eye, that quick, compared to eternity. Then Jesus says to the church, beginning with verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Let's stop there. These words from Jesus begin with, I know I know how important are those two little words from the Lord I know Jesus knows his people from the inside out upside down And from beginning to end, he knows every joy and every sorrow. He knows all about the heavy burdens and the crushing pressure. Jesus is the sympathetic Lord who knows because he shared in the same experiences of temptation and rejection of pain, and of suffering, which is common to us all. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And the church needed to know that He knows in light of what they were going through. As I mentioned earlier, Emperor worship was a popular cultic practice in Smyrna. And it was also a mandated practice by Rome. Once a year, once a year, all citizens were to go to Caesar's altar burn a pinch of incense, and simply say three little words. Caesar is Lord. That was the test applied to all citizens under Roman rule. And failure to do so was a violation of the highest law and could result In death. Just once a year. Just once a year. Burn a pinch of incense. Say, Jesus is Lord. Get a certificate of completion. Excuse me. Caesar is Lord. Excuse me. Thank you. Caesar is Lord. Get a certificate of completion and then go your own way. And that is precisely what the Christians were not willing to do. They would not call anyone Lord except Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They would not conform. And for that they suffered dearly. And death was a common reality and would continue to be so for many years to come. For example, some 50 years after writing the book of Revelation, in 155 AD, a mob wanted to shut down the church at Smyrna. By getting rid of their leader. The now aged pastor. Named Polycarp. He was likely mentored. By the apostle John. And he may have been the the pastor at the church. At the time of this letter. The hunt was on for Polycarp. So fellow believers tried to hide him in a farmhouse. But his whereabouts were revealed by a slave girl who was tortured. And the authorities came to arrest the old pastor. He welcomed his captors as if they were old friends and gave them food and drink. He asked for an hour to pray before being taken to the arena. They agreed. The hour stretched into two hours. The officers, overhearing his prayers, began to wonder what they were doing, arresting an old man like this. Polycarp was brought into the arena. And instead of Polycarp begging for his life, we are told the Roman proconsul pleaded with this aged pastor to just curse Christ so he could be released. Polycarp's reply was loud and clear. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then... Can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul threatened him with burning. And Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched? For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come do what you will. They gathered wood. And as the soldiers prepared to nail him to the stake, he refused, saying, Leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain unmoved without the security you desire from nails. The fire was lit and Polycarp polycarp burned to death. As the flames consumed him, he was heard to pray, I thank you, O Lord, that you have deemed me worthy this day and this hour to take up the cross of Christ with many witnesses. Believers were allowed to bury his remains. And churches near and far from Smyrna observed this date in years to come and drew strength from the testimony of this old pastor who would not deny Christ no matter what it cost him. This occurred on a Saturday. This occurred on a Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath. And it is told that the Jews helped to collect wood on that day for his execution. Hmm. The Jews in Smyrna were another group who persecuted this church. They rejected Christ as their long-awaited Messiah. They were hostile to his followers and they joined forces with the other pagan groups to persecute Christians. Falsely accusing them of treason against Rome so the authorities would arrest them and persecute them. Jesus called them the synagogue of Satan. Those are his words. The synagogue of Satan. Implying that under the pretense of being God's people and doing God's will, they were really doing the devil's work. Isn't it interesting? That the the religious people are the ones who tend to cause most of the problems for true believers. The church at Smyrna was persecuted by those engaged in the cult practice of emperor worship. They were persecuted by Jews living in the city, and besides that, Jesus spoke of their poverty. Even though the city was very wealthy, the Christians in it were living in extreme poverty. The Christians were described as destitute because they were robbed, fired from their jobs, taken from their livelihoods, and had their homes confiscated because they identified with Jesus Christ. It was economic persecution. A common type of of crushing pressure that the early church had experienced. And jumping ahead into the future, it will be a similar type of experience for believers during the time of tribulation. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, we are told, And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. In the future, in the future, for those who do not devote themselves to the Antichrist... For those who do not bow to his image, for those who refuse to accept the mark of the beast, they will suffer economic persecution during the tribulation period, just like those in this church of Smyrna. For the church at Smyrna, Jesus acknowledged that from a worldly standpoint, they had nothing As far as wealth, or possessions, or material goods. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. And they were likely part of the homeless population. But spiritually speaking, Jesus considered them to be rich. Jesus says the truly rich in Smyrna... Were those suffering Christians going through terrible persecution? And how's that? Some time ago, I shared with you something said by Corey Tinboom. You know that name? Corey Tinboom. She said, I love this passage, I love this. She said, you'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. When Jesus is all you have, then you will discover that Jesus is all you need. So true. You'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Because the Christians at Smyrna were so poor. They learned early on that Jesus really is all they needed. And that's why Jesus says, but you are rich. They suffered They were stripped of everything, stripped of everything except for Jesus. And for that, they became spiritually rich. The church at Smyrna was a persecuted church, a suffering church, and Jesus knew it, for he knew them. They had absolutely nothing. They were the poorest of the poor in a wealthy city. But did you notice that the one who knew them best, the one who knew them best, did not have one single negative thing to say about them spiritually? Don't you find that interesting? Not one negative word. Not a one. Their suffering was not because of any wrong they had done. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. Just like the Apostle John on Patmos... Their suffering was the result of identifying with Christ, living godly lives in an ungodly world, and standing firm in their faith. If you notice, Jesus said they would have ten days of tribulation, which could be ten literal days, or it could be symbolic for a brief Time of suffering. But however it is interpreted, for these believers, their suffering was not over as they might have hoped. The persecution would continue, it would be severe, but it would also be limited he said 10 days not 11 10 although i believe that god will at times give us more than we can handle so that we will depend upon him he does he does place limits on the trials and the hardships we experience Warren Worsby says, when God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much. Jesus said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. At face value, those are hard words to hear, aren't they? It's like telling a child you are taking to the hospital for stitches. Don't be afraid, it'll be all right. As parents, we know it'll be all right. But it's still hard for the child because the child does not know what we know. Does that make sense? In a similar way, we don't know what the Lord knows and we don't see what the Lord sees. But if we could, if we could, even for a short moment, maybe we would come to realize there really is no need to Instead, we can trust that the Lord is going to accomplish His plans and His purposes concerning His people. And yes, yes, it may include suffering and persecution. But Jesus says, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of of life. In other words, trust Him. For the time of suffering in this world is very limited at best. But the duration of the joy to come, the victor's joy, will last forever. Then Jesus speaks to us all, all who have ears, and He says in verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The one who overcomes, the one who carries on, the one who perseveres will not be hurt by the second death. What is that? If there is a second death, then it would make sense that there is a first death. Does that make sense? The first death is the death of the physical body. Something that we will all experience unless Jesus comes to gather his church first. The first death is merely death of the body. But the second death refers to eternal separation from God. The second death is the one that sends you to the lake of fire. It refers to the final destination for those who reject Christ as their Lord And Savior. As followers of Christ, we need not fear what happens to us in the here and now. And we need not fear the second death. And if you feel like a tiny ant carrying the heavy contact lens for no good reason, Just remember this weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Rachel Scott, a 17 year old at Columbine High School, was a devoted Christian teenager. Open about her faith at school and unashamed to witness to others. But doing so took a toll on her reputation. She was made an outcast, betrayed, and like any high schooler, she had her struggles. But through it all, she loved God greatly. Her diaries hold the words of her daily testimonies. She said, "I, I have no more personal friends at school. But you know what? I am not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus she wrote in her journal. I am not going to justify my faith to them, I am, and I'm not going to hide the light that God has put into me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. I will take it. If my friends have to become my enemies, for me to be the very best friend of Jesus, then that's fine with me. Three weeks before the shooting, Rachel witnessed to the shooters, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. They too were bullied, outcasts, and and they really didn't have any friends. But Rachel knew that all they needed was Jesus. Unfortunately, they were blinded by hate, and they even made videotapes mocking her Christian faith. On April 20th, 1999, the day of the shooting, Rachel was the first person shot on school campus. Dylan and Eric shot her twice in the leg and once in the back. The boys walked away, but returned seconds later after seeing she was still alive. Dylan grabbed her by the hair and asked, do you still believe in your God? When her response was, you know I do. Eric told her, then go be with him. And he shot her in the head. Again, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And that joy is not found in circumstances, is it? That joy is found in a person. The joy is found in a person. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together in your word. Father, I will admit personally this was a difficult time. a a, a difficult passage because you know I had a difficult time connecting with it. Father, I pray that you would use what we've studied this morning to give us courage and to give us hope in our struggles, to be reminded What we experience here is not the end all. But we have a future. We have a hope. And it is in Jesus Christ. And it is eternal. Help us, Lord, to keep things in perspective. Help us to be about your will. To walk in your ways. Help us to point you out and lift you up may you be honored and glorified. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Since the beginning of the early church, First century, okay? First century to present. Some 70 million, 70 million people have been killed because they identified with Jesus Christ. Okay? 70 million. What's even more alarming, that of that 70 million, over 45 million of the 70, over 45 million people were killed for identifying with Jesus Christ in the 20th century more Christians have been killed in the 20th century than all other centuries combined 20th century don't hear about that, do you? no that's the way it is in the rest of the world we just don't hear that We're talking this morning in in the men's group, and I, I just don't know how how we as, as as Americans, American church, how we would how would we react to persecution like that. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Thinking back to. Acts, the beginning of Acts. The Christians were in Jerusalem, weren't they? That's where they all were. They were all in Jerusalem. Maybe they were comfortable, not really going anywhere. That was home base. That's where they're going to stay, right? And Jesus had told his disciples, you know, you're going to spread the gospel in Jerusalem and then Samaria and to the outermost parts of the world. Did he not say that to them before he ascended? He said that. Yeah. Do you know what caused that? Do you know what do you know what do you know what started that? Persecution. Remember Saul, who is now Paul. Stephen, those stories. Once the church started to be persecuted in Jerusalem, they scattered and they took the gospel with them. They took the gospel with them. That was done. Persecution was a tool to spread the gospel. Last week we talked about Ephesus, did we not? Church is gone. In fact, the city's gone. It's just it's nothing but ruins. Church of Smyrna was a persecuted church, a suffering church. You know how many Christian churches there are in Izmir, which is formerly called Smyrna? About 250 in a Muslim city. About 250 Christian churches. Different types, whether it be Catholics or other, but they all identify with Jesus Christ. About 250. Yeah. God has a reason for for why he allows persecution in the church. He does. Does that make it easy? No, not at all. Doesn't make it easy at all. Doesn't make it easy at all. But we have to trust that our our Heavenly Father, who loves us, who sent His Son to die on a cross for us, knows exactly what He's doing. He has a purpose for what He is doing. And that may involve persecution and suffering. I was listening this morning to David Jeremiah. I, I like to listen to him. And he had said that, that uh, the future casts a shadow. It casts a shadow. And we're living in that shadow. The future being the time of tribulation. And we are currently living in that, that shadow. The stage is being set for those tribulation events. We're in the shadow. Whether we're persecuted or not. And persecution doesn't mean somebody took your chair in church. That's not persecution. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's not persecution. Okay. But there might come a time when we are persecuted as a church. Right? That could happen. How are we going to react? What are we going to do? Hopefully, we're like those people in Smyrna. We're going to trust our Lord. We're going to take Him at His word. We're going to live godly lives in an ungodly world. And we're going to stand for Christ. That's what I hope we do. That's what I hope we do. I hope this morning a sermon uh, spoke to you. As I said, I had a difficult time with it. I didn't even get it done until this morning. It was just, I just, I struggled because I just could not connect with this persecuted church. It was just so hard for me. But I hope it spoke to you in spite of me. Hope it spoke to you. If you have a decision to make this morning, a commitment to Christ, if you'd like to know him, I would love to introduce you to him. He loves you dearly. He died for you. If you're looking for a church home, love to have you here. If another decision to make, if you if you just need someone to talk to, I'd love to chat with you either today or Monday or whatever. However, the Lord leads. I just ask you to respond to Him. Let me uh, let me close this with some prayer. Um, pray for our offering. Uh, just remember, we have our baskets in the back there, and then also pray for our fellowship. I saw a lot of desserts back there, so. Uh, Expect some sugar highs. Uh, Father, I thank you for this time together uh, with uh, with family and friends. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that your hand to be upon us. Lord, help us to, to live out what we know. Father, help us to to live in such a way, Lord God, that it brings honor and glory to you, that it points you out, that it lifts you up. Father, thank you for this time of, of offering. And Lord God, I pray that... Uh, you would help us as a as a congregation to use your money wisely. Father, bless the gift. Bless the giver. And Lord God, just multiply it. And Lord God, also for our fellowship afterwards, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd, you would just bless those who prepared food, who brought food, Lord God. And then Lord, most importantly, just bless our fellowship time together. I pray, Lord God, for a joyous time, a sweet time of fellowship. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.